Maybe you remember this. In the summer of 2014, researchers Charlie Miller and Chris Valasek succeeded in hacking a Jeep Cherokee. Andy Greenberg, senior writer at Wired, allowed two hackers to remotely control a 2014 Jeep Grand Cherokee that they say hadn't been altered in any way while driving on a highway in St. Louis. We wanted to show that this attack is, has serious consequences for this vehicle. We're only two guys with one car, right? So, you know, we can't look at every car and we want to release this information because more people like us need to be focused on this problem. The event, which was captured on video and also reported in Wired magazine, sent a message to the automotive industry. In fact, I remember starting a new job by flying out to Auburn Hills, Michigan for the very first meeting of the Featherstone Group collection of automotive OEM executives and security professionals. The work that resulted from that group became new SAE standards and led to ISO 21434, a new standard focused on cybersecurity specifically for automotive. So given that we can now hack into cars remotely, can we hack into other systems as well? Could we hack into an airplane, for example, or a satellite? Turns out we can. In 2015, shortly after the Jeep hack, the National Transportation and Safety Board released a study suggesting that someone could take a wireless signal from within an airplane and perhaps cause some mischief. Since it wasn't directed at a specific airplane or a specific part of the airplane, it really didn't rise to the level of the Jeep hack. In fact, at the time, there were mixed signals as a result of the report. Steve Grobman, CTO with Intel's security group, had this to say. Yeah, I, so I, I think that nothing is ever impossible, but I think we also need to understand that the transportation, especially the aviation industry, is world-class in setting up their systems for redundancy, for security, and what they've done for the systems that are in place today have many, many measures that are in place to protect against the type of scenario that we're talking about. Okay. With okay. that said, I think that it is great that, that this is getting exposure and is an area for the industry to put extra focus David. on. On that same CNBC show, security researcher Dave Kennedy had this to say. Well, I, I agree uh, with Steve to a certain extent. I mean, the FAA has a lot of safety regulations in place to, to try to prohibit you know, these types of attacks. But there was actually another GAO uh, study that came out uh, about two months ago that showed that the FAA had no security controls in place, uh, that they couldn't detect or monitor for intrusions. Uh, so I think this is a much larger scale um, you know, issue when it comes to good security practices. And while safety is a big concern, I don't know if it's necessarily been in the you know, cyberspace or the technology space yet. And a lot of these systems, while they do set them up and do decent controls, it's possible to potentially breach them and go after them. So I say it's definitely possible. In a moment, I'll talk about something tangible and good that did come from the NTSB report. But only after another security researcher really pushed the envelope and tweeted out some of the things he said he was capable of doing seated on a plane while it was in flight. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm talking about getting industry to sit down with hackers and hackers to approach industry, to share information together, as opposed to stunt hacks and standoffs. I'm talking about the aerospace village and how it's bringing security to airplanes that we all fly and how that's a good thing. After the NTSB released its 2015 report about aircraft hacking, very little action came of it. The airline industry wrote it off as though it were an unlikely scenario. So one of the security researchers decided to, well, poke the tiger. And his work certainly made the evening news. In fact, here's CBS News. A computer security researcher was kept off a plane for suggesting on social media that he could hack into the plane's control system. During a flight to Syracuse last week, Chris Roberts posted this tweet 
joking that he could deploy the plane's oxygen mass. The FBI detained him when he landed and questioned him for hours. It plans to fly again on Saturday, but United Airlines kept him off the plane. And here's ABC News. Air scares usually involve dangerous turbulence or emergency landings, but tonight, a new threat you probably have never heard about. A computer security expert says he hacked into a plane's in-flight entertainment system and briefly made it fly sideways. The FBI is now investigating, and we ask, are passenger planes now at risk? Chris Roberts, a.k.a. Dragon one had reached the tipping point. He had been researching vulnerabilities in aircraft for years, and he just wasn't some stunt hacker. He explained how he'd been studying the problem for years on Fox News. You basically have to understand how computer networks work, how avionic systems work, and then be able to translate and communicate between those systems. We've primarily focused on actually physically being in the airplane, hooking up to the in-flight entertainment. But theoretically, you can also leave devices behind and remotely get in through the onboard wireless. And what about that tweet that he sent that said that he could do things like drop the oxygen mask while the plane was in flight? Uh, the tweet was pretty blunt. It was in response to the GAO report, and apparently one of the uh, airline manufacturers had tweeted, basically put a response to say that they thought it was all nice and secure and that they were good, and obviously I disagree with that. And so uh, while I was actually on a plane, I, I was very blunt, having paid for my wireless access, I was very blunt in responding, saying, you know what, I'm sitting here, and I know that this is what is possible to do on these airplanes. It wasn't deliberately intended to scare. It was, it was frustration. I mean, this is four or five years okay. worth of research that we have done. We've done a lot of, of attempts to, to work with the industry and work with the intelligence community. And, you know, they've turned somewhat of a blind eye so far. Is it really impossible to hack an airplane? Robert says it's possible. All the research that we have done, both myself and fellow security consultants and researchers in this area, as well as having got a lot of support from retired, retired pilots, engineers and other individuals, obviously indicates otherwise. I'm doubling down on this because it points to a fundamental problem with serious hacking. Often, when a flaw is first reported, the vendor will naturally push back. Making such claims public, however, to illustrate the danger only intensifies that disagreement. This is something that the hacking community has been working on. Back in 2015, there really wasn't a way for hackers and avionics vendors to meet in the middle. Now, Thanks to volunteer work of many individuals, we have something called the Aerospace Village. So I decided to find out more. Yeah, my name is Steve Luzinski, and I am the board chairman for the Aerospace Village. Yeah, my name is Matt Mays, and uh, I'm the deputy director or chief of staff, depending on, uh, on how you want to frame it. Now, before we get too far, one might ask, if you're going to go through the process of creating a village, why not create a whole conference around the topic of aerospace instead? Then again, why not tap into the existing crowd of like-minded people at a conference and focus them on a topic that you're interested in? This is something that DEF CON has encouraged lately. Yeah, it's, it's certainly easier to be a village than to put on an entire conference. And especially, uh, I know the villages from DEF CON. So being able to be a part of a massive event with the audience that that's who we want to engage that's who we want to help uh being a part of defcon and being invited into the villages is what's a, it's such a good experience um i think the easiest way to describe it and i've, I've in, in talking to different folks who are not familiar with defcon you know any conference has presentations you have your keynote you have your uh, you can do a specialization track of different talks and they try to have themes and things of that nature and DEFCON's the same way, uh, but what DEFCON has done is they've had groups of people who come together that want to focus on a particular topic. Things like industrial control systems, uh, car hacking, uh, and, and things of that nature, biohacking, medical devices. And so the ability to find folks who are interested in aviation-related uh, computer systems and how do you make them secure uh, space systems and how do you make them secure? And just the fact that those are hard to get to, hard to access. So uh, to get like-minded folks coming together to get exposure for other folks to go, hey, what's going on over there? I want to learn more about that. And they didn't know they were like-minded and 
till they started seeing and talking. And that's the beauty of the village concept that as I've seen it in my few years of going to DEF CON and then uh, being a part of the, the aerospace village and, and getting to contribute to all of that. DEF CON is celebrating its 30th year this year with villages that are relatively new. So how did the aerospace village get started? I, I wish it was something as good as that, as the, uh, you know, all good ideas on the back of a cocktail napkin type of story, but I, I don't think it's too far from it. Um, I spoke with one of the guys that was fundamental to the village starting, Bo Woods, who uh, has been on your podcast before. And I think folks who know DEF CON and the, the hacker community probably know him very well. Uh, and uh, beyond the hacker community and the policy side of things, his think tank work, Bo's a tremendous asset, uh, wealth of knowledge and things like that. And so I, I was asking him, uh, you know, what are the things that led up to what I started seeing and, and what was going on? And so um, some of the things because of Bo's work on nonprofit side, again, all, all around the InfoSec community, uh, but looking at these different villages. And if you remember... 2014, around that time, before that or so, uh, car hacking was starting to be in the news. People were talking about it. And uh, Bo told me, he's like, yeah, I had, I had conversations with folks at uh, the Aviation ISAC. They focus on uh, security in that community. And, and they were, there was interest in the fact of these, these are issues that we need to address. The inability or the reluctance to talk across communities for the private sector with government, government with private sector, right? There's that's ongoing and always there, but uh, the private sector and, and the cybersecurity community, getting the security researchers. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot of trust there. A lot of people didn't know each other and there wasn't always trust because of some of the claims that were coming out and the way that it was being presented in the media uh, that just made things difficult. As a longtime InfoSec reporter, I know it's sometimes hard to cover the issues as they are. There's so much hype. But I will say some of us really do take the time to talk to the experts. And some of us really do try to understand what's what. And often, yeah, it's not quite as sexy as your editor might want it to be. Often, though, the truth is a lot more cool. So there was interest in doing these things conversations he had, like I mentioned, on the private sector side with folks that worked at uh, Department of Homeland Security before CISA was an actual agency, its, its predecessor. And there was interest in doing these things. But the struggle was, how do you do these things? And how do you bring these folks together? Um, and I remember what really struck me, uh, you know, not knowing that was going on, but uh, as an Air Force pilot, I, I, my last three years in the Air Force were at the Pentagon, and I had the opportunity because of where I work, working on cyber policy, plans and operations specifically, uh, I got to go to DEF CON. And man, what a great experience. That was DEF CON 22 back in 2014. But one of the panels, one of the talks that I went to uh, was specifically, I remember it was a, a, a there was a, I can't remember the guy's role. I think he was a CISO, the woman talking. I think she was a chief pilot at one of the airlines. But the discussion was, hey, there's these stories in the media. Here's the reality of how airplanes work, how the systems are connected, and whether or not they can really be hacked the way the claims are made. So it was very good for me from a flying background to hear it and having a little bit of a cybersecurity background hearing it. And then the discussions that went with that because of what was going on at the time. Okay. I remember that panel at DEF CON 22. It was called Cyber Hijacking Airplanes, Truth or Fiction? And it featured Dr. Phil Polstra and Captain Polly, who addressed some of the more recent issues going on in the media. I'm Dr. Phil, and this is Captain Polly. Just a little bit, why, why this talk? Well, you know, there's a lot of people who have been talking about being able to take over planes remotely and, and such. And... Of course, when you say things like that, you get a lot of press. And so we just thought maybe it was time to investigate some of these things and look at them a little further. Um, and it's okay to be scared, 
But if you're going to be scared, be scared because of reality, you know, because of some fiction, maybe some stuff that the media has made you think. That's why there's events like DEFCON, to set the record straight by presenting factual information. In fact, the talk at DEFCON 22 was newsworthy because it served to reassure its audience that, well, it really is hard to hack an airplane. All right. So let me get this out of the way to start with. One thing that everyone needs to understand, you cannot override the pilot. All right. You cannot override the pilot's inputs on flight controls. That system is closed. You know, even if it's fly-by-wire, uh, believe it or not, some of these airliners still use cables for some of the controls. For example, the Embraer regional jet actually uses cables for the elevator controls. Um, so it's not even fly-by-wire completely. But um, also something you should understand is that all of these airplanes do feature mechanical backup instruments. Now, I'm not going to say that the pilots still know how to use them. I'm just going to say that they're there. All right? Nice. So, you know, you can't really hack a mechanical altimeter or, or attitude indicator, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Um, I said you can, but I should have said you may be able to affect the autopilot operation. But then again, you need to realize if the pilots notice what's going on, they will disconnect the autopilot. Matt shares this belief as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, fundamentally, airplanes are still very secure. One of the biggest risks is in physical access to an airplane. And thankfully, for the most part, uh, airports are very secure. So, so that cuts off a lot of the uh, attack vector, if you will. Um, but as airplanes and systems become more and more connected, you are opening up some risks. And, and thankfully, there are a lot of smart people that are trying to address this. We uh, just want to make sure that, that we help to bring some smart people that know how these things can be exploited in and put them in contact with, uh, with people that are designing these systems just to make sure that everything is, in fact, safe. For example, automatic dependent surveillance broadcast or ADSB, which provides real-time precision, shared situational awareness, advanced applications for pilots. That would seem to be a juicy target, right? Except in reality, it's not. Here's Dr. Phil again. Uh, ADSB is a pretty well-known protocol. You know, there's been some other talks about it. Uh, if you look at the slide down in the bottom left, you'll see a board that you can use to receive, decode ADS-B signals, even send your own. And on the right is a commercial unit that you might find in a small aircraft that's a GPS slash ADS-B unit for receiving and sending ADS-B signals. Actually, I think that one only receives ADS-B. But um, as others have said, it's true. There's no security in this protocol. Uh, you can create phantom aircraft. You can create bogus ADS-B transmissions all day long. Uh, you could even create fake weather reports if you so choose. Or if you're just really frustrated, you could always jam it. You know, you can jam any frequency. Um, however, as we're going to talk about in a bit, it's not likely to affect any kind of traffic or collision avoidance system. So you can disrupt systems, but you're unlikely to create those Hollywood scenarios. That's because the systems within the planes are segmented, which is a good security practice. The fact that you have people thinking about this problem, I don't want you to worry about it. You know, it's great that you're not thinking about it. I don't want my mom thinking about it. Just get on the airplane. Things are safe physically. Things are safe with cybersecurity. Don't be, it's not that there isn't a concern. It's like, I don't want that to be foremost on your mind because we do have these people who, understand and think about these things and know how to find ways around and fix them. That's the important part. And, and that's what we want to continue supporting and encouraging.
So why would you go to a village at DEFCON? I mean, DEFCON by itself is pretty great. It's huge, and you're very likely to find others who share your interests. The villages, then, are just ways to ensure that you're going to find people who share your interests. And so that is what attracted Steve to the idea in the first place. Uh, I started working on aviation cybersecurity issues in the government between uh, what uh, DOD was doing with FAA and was also doing with what became CISA. Now TSA is running that and that whole aviation cybersecurity initiative has grown. But in those discussions and what was going on there, um, and that's where around that time uh, I met Bo because of his work at the Atlantic Council. And what he was seeing was uh, interest, again, from the private sector. Talus in particular came in and they were doing work with uh, the Atlantic Council and they ended up sponsoring a report about aviation cybersecurity. And one of the village's founders, uh, Pete Cooper, he was the main author of that report. It's important to note that it's not just hackers at DEF CON. There are plenty of government people there too, and that's a tradition going all the way back to the very first DEF CON. And lately, there have been industry people there too. People aren't necessarily hackers themselves, but they need to know about hacking for their work, for their compliance, and for other aspects of the business. Working with Bo, uh, the speaking event, when we rolled that out, and, and, and you know, I was able to participate, a lot of other smart folks in that area were a part of that rollout and getting to hear the industry perspective on this issue, getting to have some hacker perspectives on this issue. And, and throughout that entire time, Bo and his creative nature, he had been talking about a village for a while. And, and those are the things that, uh, you know, you start putting together a hacker at a think tank with a pilot who understands what's going on the flying side and has an appreciation for government. Pete's background was in the British military as a pilot and working on cybersecurity in the government. It's like the perfect storm. And, uh, and what Bo told me was great. He's like, yeah, the, the day that the applications were due, it was a discussion of, hey, you want to do this? Yeah, let's do it. And they submitted and it got accepted. And, uh, you know, here we are today after that, of you know, gathering all the volunteers going, well, we did it, so let's go. And, uh, you know, to me, what I really like about it is the talk about grassroots. There was no money. There was no, well, we have all these funds. We have all of this. It was, well, we're in now, so let's start going. And then pulling in the folks to support and, and the way it's built up from there. So I think that's a fairly short version of what got us there, but uh, it's definitely a, a good detail and uh, you know, the background of it. I'm just amazed of seeing all these things come together. So what drew an experienced pilot like Matt to the village? So I've, uh, I've worn a couple different hats over the years and I was, used to be an engineer. And uh, one of the projects I worked for at a government agency was uh, on uh, electronic flight bags. Back in the day, pilots would bring on board these heavy bags full of navigation reports and etc. Today, in the interest of saving weight and just generally being more accessible, pilots use electronic flight bags or tablets that have been hardened and are loaded with the information that they're going to need in flight. And if you're familiar with those, they're, they're basically, uh, we've taken iPads and it's common throughout commercial and uh, military aviation. And all of our charts and, and navigation data can be stored on these, these iPads. And so uh, that was my first exposure to just how vulnerable is aviation data and how can we, when we're navigating off that, ensure that, uh, that, that the data you're looking at is in fact the correct data. So that was my first exposure to the, you know, the risks that could be out there and trying to take a real solid look at it. Uh, once I got out of the the engineering uh, role and started uh, flying for a living, uh, I still maintained some some interest in this side of things. And so when I saw what uh, what Steve and uh, the rest of what was the aviation village at the time, what I saw what they were doing, I, I knew I wanted to get involved. I think that it's important to kind of throw out there that I mean, there are, there are surprises all the time, just like with the, the 5G issues that came up recently. In 2018, the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC in the United States, 
had an auction to sell off parts of the electromagnetic spectrum to make way for the new 5G wireless that was still being created. There was a problem, one that a few people noticed right away, in that some of the newly auctioned off frequencies could impact existing devices. Here's Nicholas Calio, CEO of Airlines for America, testifying before Congress in February of 2022. Commercial aviation is the safest mode of transportation in the world, due in part to technology like radio altimeters. They are essential tools that provide input to many other critical safety systems on an airplane. Since the spring of 2018, A4A and others in the aviation industry have been raising concerns about radio altimeters in a new 5G environment. I point you to the timeline of cautions we raised, which is attached to our written testimony. As time ran out ahead of the scheduled and then rescheduled deployment dates, A4A sounded the alarm. I and all of our member CEOs signed a letter warning of significant disruption to air passengers, shippers, the supply chain, and delivery of needed medical supplies. The restrictions that were being imposed on the industry would have impacted approximately 345,000 <clears throat> passengers, passenger flights, 32 million passengers, and 5,400 cargo flights each year in the form of delayed flights, diversions, or cancellations. The past few months have been a, nothing short of a harrowing sequence of looming deadlines and impending government action. The process that led up to this operational nightmare or potential operational nightmare should be held up as a cautionary, cautionary tale of lack of communication and coordination gone around. So right there, it was an issue of lack of coordination and communications among the FCC and the airline industry that was the problem. They weren't talking to each other about these emerging technological issues. Fortunately, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration in the United States, got involved. And in February of 2022, AT&T and Verizon and others went ahead with their scheduled rollout and the airplanes didn't fall out of the sky. That wasn't necessarily what the concern was. Now that was not a you know a specific risk to airplanes in that there are mitigations in place. But I know the airplane I fly, uh, if if it's set up to do an auto land, one of the things that it relies upon is an accurate uh, radar altimeter, and so it's trying to look for just how close you are to the ground in a in a very accurate way. And if that somehow gets interrupted by uh, a five G signal, that that starts to cause some chaos in the, the decisions the computers are making. And so by extension, that same chaos could be caused by people doing that sort of thing on purpose. And so again, are these uh, situations being thought through as, the, as airplanes just become even more and more complex? You know, I, I'm not a current pilot. I just want to mention I am one, so I can throw that out. But uh, but I laugh about it only in the sense that when I was doing this in the Air Force, it was not a concern. We were not, we, the pilots, were not worried about it. Uh, but it absolutely, I realize now, was a concern for the folks behind the scenes who understood the need for that. And so that, seeing that translate over and as it's growing and how it's uh, getting gaining interest and being able to talk about it more openly now is great. And then the other thing that I think is important, you know, we've kind of focused on, you have two folks that have a pilot background. Um, and it is, that's typically how the public thinks about it when they hear these stories, it's very focused on aircraft. Um, but the important part to keep in mind, and what I really like about the way we're structured and the way we do our work, aircraft are one element. We look at the entire ecosystem the airports, they're, they're an entire city by themselves with all the different types of networks, IT, OT, what they have to deal with, with vendors and airlines and, and passengers coming through. Um, but it's also the air traffic management system. So all the things that go into communications and navigation. And when we started as the aviation village, we included space in that in the sense that a lot of the communications and navigation are based off of space-based assets. But the change when we uh, decided that, no, space is an, an absolute critical element, let's become the aerospace village, because we want to make sure the focus is on that area too, not just from the aviation mindset that we had, but 
uh, as we started, you know, the ideas for Hackasack came out and uh, the work that Pete and uh, Dr. Roper did at the time of coming up with that idea and how that's grown and just the recognition now of all the folks who are working on that sector and the importance of it. And it's a nice combination, but it's absolutely very broad, very big. The applications are these systems that are in other sectors, other parts of our lives. Um, and so there's benefit there and good mutual support across those sectors with this type of work. So at a lot of hacking conferences that I go to, I have a laptop and it's running Linux. I, I can join in and I can follow along. The thing is, I'm having trouble with this aerospace village in that I don't have an aircraft that I can tinker with. And chances are, neither do you. Yeah, that uh, that was a lot of the impetus behind having the village get together is uh, the equipment government equipment is not easily accessible it's classified it's incredibly expensive uh, it's proprietary if it's coming from the original manufacturer or the airline that of course they want to keep things to themselves and protect it in that sense um, but the ideas of how they work the concepts behind it those aren't necessarily special or in any way a secret and so getting folks to understand this is how these systems, the code, the language, the interactions, this is how they all come together. Now, how they're done on that particular aircraft or that particular network, that's a different story, but getting them that type of access uh, to the equipment, to the ideas, finding the other folks who we've had uh, come in and give presentations of, let me tell you how for that satellite to operate, here's the entire ground-based network that goes into supporting it. And just that type of learning, which isn't necessarily common out there or easy to find, facilitating that and providing that, that's uh, one of the things that we, uh, I think we've done a great job of getting the folks together and, and continuing to grow, uh, but being able to find a young person who says, yeah, I want to learn more about that and giving them those opportunities. Part of that is working with the aerospace companies and bringing them in to also get people excited about the possibilities in securing the aerospace industry. And this is one of the roles that Matt provides the organization. So, yes, I, uh, I do have uh, a role in trying to bring more companies uh, in, and organizations into the village to try and get them to actually uh, to bring some of the equipment that they use and, and make it accessible to people. And, and that's really the, the, the key in all this is, is there's a lot of companies that are skeptical of hackers and they're, you know, both sides are, are looking at each other and, and uh, you know, a little bit uh, in an uneasy fashion. And, and so we want to show that neither side is scary and that, that everything can be mutually beneficial. So uh, when we had an aircraft manu uh, manufacturer show up with uh, one of their devices and actually allowing people to, uh, you know, walk around and use that, or when we have, uh, you know, what's, uh, examples of satellites that, that people can try and tinker with or try and uh, secure operating systems for drones, things like that. Um, actually letting people get hands-on with it is something that they're just not finding anywhere else. And so it, it's some really uh, neat options for, for people to, to get involved with in the village. Early on when the idea of the village came up and we specifically looked at based on the challenge, and what are the values that we want to guide us and how do we want to do this and pursuing the overall security which improves safety and at the time for air travel air operations people cargo all of those things and then now it's grown into space uh, operations from there but uh, that was our guiding principles and we wanted to bring together folks who wanted to do positive productive collaboration. They wanted to contribute. That was in our minds. And so as we started talking about that and, and talking in that manner, uh, it was easy for us to go out and say, hey, different, different companies, different researchers, you know, this is what we're looking to do. Do you want to join in? 
but like I mentioned before, the reluctance came from folks didn't know each other. Uh, entities, if you know, government and private sector, there's regulatory issues, there's history there. Same thing on the on the security researcher community. So there's there's those kinds of difficulties. And and early on it was difficult. Um, when we were forming up, we had great support for our first event uh, where we participated as the Aviation Village at uh, DEF CON in 2019. And it worked out really well, but it was incredibly difficult. The folks we had there, we had there with no problem. We, we did not get other folks we were engaging because of that uncertainty, not knowing what was going on, not being willing to address these issues in public because of the concern, the gotchas, and this is the disconnect that I mentioned between industry and hackers, the perception that they're adversarial. Somebody who's going to pop out a, an O-Day at DEF CON and surprise a company and things of that nature. And again, our, our principles and what were keeping us uh, focused was the fact that, no, we, we, didn't, we didn't need that. We didn't want that. We wanted to do things that built on uh, responsible disclosures that built on getting relationships formed and sustained because we know we can get a lot more out of that in the long run than any short-term fix or surprise or you know anything like that. So uh, those things really helped out. And so after that first event, again, reluctance, hand-wringing, teeth gnashing, concern, what are these crazy people going to do? And I'm like, well, we don't have that many crazy people in here. You kind of have uh, some fairly middle of the road folks with a breadth of experience. Uh, we got volunteers that from around the world that were participating in this. And it was a success. It was a success in the sense that we pulled off what we wanted to do. We showed how we wanted to do it. And then what we've seen since then is the benefits um, Boeing's been uh, a participant with us at a number of events. Um, they also have hosted uh, hackers, government folks up at uh, their plant as part of their tech advisory council. They have recurring meetings and we've been participating in those along with other uh, security researchers that have been brought in to join and have those discussions. The same way that uh, I mentioned before the DOD, FAA, now TSA effort called Aviation Cybersecurity Initiative, uh, their regular meetings and what they do engaging the community and where we are a part of that. And we have participated, we've had speakers uh, doing presentations with them. So those are some of the things where we've seen that change over time and the benefit of this very focused, very specific effort and how it's helping to grow because people see the value and we're, we're really growing the trust so folks are more willing to talk to one another in all of this. Actually, it started with involvement from the aerospace industry. And some of the vendors now host their own internal hacking sessions. I'd say at this point, uh, the, really the pitch is, is to show that, that hackers aren't scary. And, and so whether that is um, introducing the, the right people that might be able to help a, a company or an organization down the line, um, you know, that's, that's one avenue. Um, but, but really it's, it's that it, nobody, or at least the way that we have, have designed things is, is we don't plan on, you know, on flashy vulnerabilities being released as, as a part of the village. This is not, you know, like, like Steve said, this isn't some, you know, gotcha type of situation. This is, okay, let's talk about some of the, the weaknesses that are inherent in the, the way these um, aerospace systems have been designed. Because a lot of them go back, uh, you know, with uh, fundamental design choices uh, from decades ago, when when things just uh, that are that are issues today just weren't a concern, and so um, a lot of the the organizations and companies do realize that there are vulnerabilities inherent in the systems, and so openly talking about them is is actually I think a good thing because how can we try to mitigate those those known issues? And, and just talking about things that exist and exposing people so that whether it's, uh, you know, someone learns how to download a, a, a weather image from a NOAA satellite 
And then they're able to take that skill set and eventually get involved in trying to secure satellites down the line, or, you know, having those fundamental understanding, uh, understandings of how, uh, of how data gets transmitted from a satellite is just, it's, it's better for everyone that uh, might want to get involved in making these things more secure. So we've talked about industry. There's the other side, the hacker side. I, I have a laptop with Linux, so I can hack into a network or a mobile phone app or a remote garage door opener. But with airplanes, that, that seems like a barrier to entry. It seems like I'm going to need very expensive, exclusive equipment. Yet, in talking with Steve and Matt, I know it's only like 30 bucks to get a software-controlled radio unit and that I can create my own Yagi antenna in the backyard. And boom, it's like suddenly I can be communicating with an airplane overhead. That's definitely one of the things that, uh, that is really interesting for people to, to start to understand is just how open so many things are. Uh, we've had a presenter that has shown how you can uh, intercept some of the radio communications, uh, the, some of the text radio communications that come from aircraft, and you come to find out there was a point in time where credit card numbers were, were being displayed just in the clear. And, and so those things have, have since improved. But, uh, but yeah, lots of demos like that where, where people just don't realize that, that this stuff is easily accessible and not necessarily hidden. Uh, but yeah, when it comes to, uh, you can listen in on air traffic control communications, you can uh, see uh, aircraft positioning through ADSB. And, and so we have a, 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 one of our members set up a, what he called a cantenna. And it was simply, uh, you know, a, a, I think it was a Pringles can that uh, he set up to be able to intercept the, uh, the position information for all the airliners and aircraft that were in the Las Vegas area and, and display that on a map. And, and you start to realize just how open a lot of these things are for a lot of interoperability. But these demos really do demonstrate that it's not some super secret, uh, you know, access that you need to have to get to these things. It, it really is accessible, like you said, with a, a $30 software-defined radio and, and you know, a laptop or Raspberry Pi, you can get access to a lot of very interesting data. And I'll even be more specific because the antenna needed metal. It was a natural light beer can uh, that he turned into the, the cantenna and uh, uh, showed how to make that at our first DEF CON in person there in, 25, uh, in 2019. So uh, and then the, to add on to what Matt said about and what I, you know, I'm showing you visually, but for the audience, uh, the idea of an SDR uh, radio dongle, an antenna, less than $50 off of Amazon, you combine that with uh, that project and how do you bring in these weather satellite signals? How do you bring in ADSB signals from aircraft? Uh, one of the smart folks that are on the village team designed a badge that we've had and we've sold this a number of times that the entire badge in the shape of an airliner if you connect that antenna to one engine you get the NOAA satellite signals and pictures you can download you connect to the other engine that same antenna you get ADSB signals and uh, the paper for how to do all of this the students who helped this professor with the idea they did a talk on it uh, for us in 2020 that's on our YouTube channel and all the, the bill of material, the GitHub for the code to do all of this, it's out there. And it's that, it's that kind of, that's not access to the big giant pieces of equipment on airliners and things of that nature that we talked about. But uh, it's the idea of understanding how these systems come together and what you can do with what's out there with creative hacking thinking. Uh, to be able to teach folks this. And, and that's one of the things we've really seen the benefit of that. And, and I'll add on to that, that uh, one of the, the themes that, that we really strive for is, uh, is a crawl, walk, run. And so you're going to have people that, that show up that, that 
barely know anything about the the aerospace sector. And so um, one of the, the, the groups that has been very helpful for us uh, with the village is uh, Defense Digital Service. And one of the activities they've done, uh, they, they do a, a wide range of activities, but one of them that's very popular is called Bricks in the Air. And it's, it's just a, it's a Lego airplane where they've set up uh, some things that you can just do some basic hacking on uh, just as a sample of, you know, it's not a, a real uh, airplane system, but you can make one of the engines stop and you can make it start smoking and you can make all sorts of adjustments to the airplane over this, uh, you know, fake setup that they have. But the idea is it, you know, there are commands that are being transmitted to different sections of the airplane and, and you can modify those commands. And so it's just a very basic introduction to, to, you know, airplane hacking, you could say. And then as the complexity increases, you get all the way up to what we probably, uh, uh, what we talked about in the past, uh, being a very popular event called Hackasat. And, and that's at the, you know, the, the, the very complex end of things where people are competing and ultimately, uh, two years ago, were able to actually uh, send commands to a real satellite in space to take a picture. And, um, and it, it's just incredible that, uh, that all of this is, is uh, all related to the village. Given the size of airplanes, you might be thinking that the aerospace village is in a grand ballroom full of equipment or an airplane hangar. But in reality, it's pretty small. I asked Steve to give me a walkthrough of what the village looked like back in 2019 and what it might look like in the future. Uh, the conference space, we are one small part of it with the other villages. Uh, but the area that we had in 2019, for example, um, I'd say like, uh, think of an Olympic sized swimming pool worth of floor space, uh, where off at one end, we had a F-35 simulator that the Air Force brought in for us. We have some tables and things for folks to hang out. Uh, we had a video feed showing a uh, bug bounty effort that was being done on an F-15 maintenance system. It wasn't in the same venue. We didn't have room for it, but it was, the folks who were running that from SINAC, the Defense Digital Service who were bringing that in and talking about what these folks were doing. Next to that, we had uh, a uh, virtual reality training that the Air Force uses for pilot training. So just getting to see that, that some of those, that the simulator and the VR goggles were interest to bring people in, not necessarily to hack on them, uh, but it certainly drew a crowd. Um, but we also had uh, what looked like a, it was a general aviation cockpit with the equipment on a, on just basic plywood, uh, but what it, it was operating, it had uh, power to it. And the guy who built it, Patrick Kiley, he worked for Rapid7. And for that event, Rapid7, because of his work, had found a, found a vulnerability in CANBUS and did a, a coordinated disclosure with DHS. And he was able to be there with his equipment talk to folks coming up and show this is how it works. Here's the problem and here's what it looks like when it isn't working correctly. So not only did you have the technically smart person who's talking about it, but there's the gear right there that you could touch and see and interact with and, and, and you get to learn what he was doing. Uh, in addition to that, and you know, towards the other side of things, uh, we had a display area where the Cantena that we mentioned before was on display. We had a small workshop. Uh, our uh, chief hacking officer, Jim Ross, uh, he does some great work and he was showing folks how he built that antenna, how it works. And he had displayed the air traffic over the top of Las Vegas that that antenna could pick up. And in that same area, we had a couple of tables set up and our uh, pen test partners they're based in the UK, they were there and they had pieces of aircraft equipment. It's not the latest and greatest cutting edge. They did not want to do anything like that, but it was simple equipment showing this is what it looks like. Here's what the inside looks like. Here are the protocols that are in there, the languages, the coding, 
the things in their work that they know how this equipment works, that they could interact with folks and talk to them about it. So think of the village then as a mini conference. It has presentations. It has its own activities. And the talks are pretty good. And then we were able to have uh, a few talks in that area, but also we had another that we shared for presentations. So we had a number of folks coming in talking across the range of aviation cybersecurity policy issues from a government perspective, things that other folks had done uh, from the hacking perspective, and and being able to talk about those in a uh, small audience, uh, about 100 people at a time. So it was a good variety of things. And then uh, Matt mentioned it before, like what we did last year, we had a hybrid, both virtual and in-person presence at DEF CON. And in that sense, because we built up a great partnership uh, between the Air Force, Air Force Research Labs, Defense Digital, and the Hackasat effort, and bringing in folks who had a flat sat on the table, showing how it works. Here's the actual device. Here are how things work on that. Um, our uh, support from Boeing, having an electronic flight bag and talking about what this piece of equipment looks like and how it interacts and how pilots use it. And again, those types of things that in addition to the number of presentations and you know, the presentation part I'd say is pretty easy and if nothing else, the, one of the benefits of being a part and, and learning how to operate virtually is a little bit more availability for folks instead of having to travel to talk. Uh, there's a number of things on our YouTube channel that the presentations we've had virtually and what we intend to continue bringing into the event. Uh, we've had Pam Melroy, she's a former uh, shuttle astronaut, been up to the space station, uh, I think on two different missions. She's now the deputy administrator at NASA. She talked about programming to save weight for space missions and bringing the internet to the International Space Station. So just absolutely fascinating. Um, the CISO from the FAA talking about the work he does across the aviation sector. Um, so, you know, again, the range of folks from the government side, the operator side, um, pen test partners doing a tour of a 747 and the different computer equipment on that. Um, I've done a talk with some young folks about their work in the uh, different parts of the aerospace sector, government, non-government type of jobs. And then other researchers with very technical, in-depth, detail talks, uh, just a number of things. So it's been good to see the variety of what we've been able to, to bring in as we continue to get more and more support. So that's, and we want to continue that momentum as we're, we're going forward. And we see that happening. I could list off all the different workshops and um, you know, speakers we've had, it really is just an, an impressive list of, uh, of groups and people that we've had be a part of the village. And, and you really, I, I'd like to say, you could almost spend the, the entire conference just in our, in our village. Um, it really is impressive, just the wide range of, of activities available. Since these villages are mini hacking conferences within the larger hacking conference, it makes sense that in addition to having the exhibits and having their own speakers, they would also have their own capture the flag competitions. And the aerospace village is no different. We've actually, again, sort of down the, the, the path of crawl, walk, run, our uh, CTFs have also uh, run the gamut there from really just uh, you know, basic puzzles, uh, all virtual, to the uh, to the sort of the, the grand challenge of sorts, the the Hackasat uh, uh, CTF, where it that had dedicated uh, qualification rounds, and then the finals were done at uh, as a part of DefCon uh, two years ago, and and that in uh, Hackasat two then took place this last year, um, and and so 
while the finals for Hackset 2 were not a part of DEF CON, um, their presence was there talking about a, a lot of the different challenges that were available and the puzzles and that uh, all of the skills that needed to go into taking part in their CTF. So it very much was was there. But yeah, there's uh, we have <clears throat> CTFs for, for all ranges of uh, interests and abilities. I think one of the, the, the key things I'll add on to that, uh, like what Matt was saying is Hackasat itself, that is a effort that the Air Force started. Again, uh, Dr. Roper, Pete Cooper, one of our co-founders, the collaboration and coming up with that idea. That's probably as close to a cocktail napkin type of an idea uh, that I mentioned before. And so seeing that come out, that as a collaboration of uh you know, where you might think a typical standoffish government or military entity, but the willingness to engage, the willingness to do things that are interesting to our audience, to this community, uh, and where it's really taken off in popularity. It's an incredibly well-run event. It's a great partnership between Hackasat and the village. It is not something that we invented, but we are happy to help them participate and engage with our audience because of what they bring um, the challenge itself, um, anybody can join in and there's a number of things that they have of, I'll say simple questions because they're certainly some more simple than some of the higher end things, the questions and the tasks that you have to know to be competitive at that super high, highly skilled level that the folks who are winning these events uh, have. Uh, and that's what makes it interesting because it's things from orbital mechanics to the coding to security to understanding when that satellite's overhead is when I can do something and then it goes away. So I got to do other work until it comes back and having to learn all of that and getting an appreciation for that. And then like, and what Matt said about, uh, you know, that's the absolute run to a sprint and then some level. Uh, but the, the more basic things coming in where they're not necessarily a capture the flag, but what he mentioned before with bricks in the air, uh, we continue to develop those kind of CTF challenges. And we're working with partners now to bring that in uh, because we do want folks to be engaged in a way that is challenging if that's what they need. If they just want to get exposure and learn it, absolutely. We want to have that for them. And as they're developing their skills, we want to give them the resources, who to go to, where to go to, or the events uh, at things like DEF CON, so that they can do that uh, with somebody there in person to help them out. Um, and so we're continuing to develop that. And, and that's paying off very well. And folks are uh, appreciating getting those opportunities. And it probably is good to mention that, that again, to emphasize that we are not the ones that are actually developing the CTFs. And that's where we, we just have some, some great partners. So again, Hackasat um, was, was something uh, done by AFRL. And uh, then we have uh, Cal Poly uh, they, and they did the entry level CTF. So California Polytechnic State University. And what's interesting about that was uh, their CTF was actually ultimately used as part of the uh, California cyber innovation challenge. And so that was a, a high school level program. And, uh, and so just a great introduction for people trying to, you know, figure out if maybe an aerospace uh, career might be for them. And then um, the aviation ISAC sponsored a CTF with uh, that actually was developed by Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And that was sort of our, our middle level uh, CTF. And so it really is. I mean, yeah, some, some very creative people are coming up with some interesting challenges, again, no matter what level you're, you're looking at. So we've mentioned that these villages draw a subset of people from the larger conference. And some spend their entire time in the village, not even in the larger conference. So I'm wondering, who are the people who are drawn to the aerospace village? Are they hackers? Are they pilots? Are they both? <laughs> so yeah, the, the personalities that are attracted to the, to the village, uh, it, of course, it runs the gamut. Uh, it's fascinating to see just how many people are interested in aerospace when, and they come by the village 
not really knowing the ins and outs. And so it is, it, it tended to be, at least this last year, tended to be people that are familiar with hacking and are familiar with, uh, uh, you know, that side of things, if you will. And then, but just don't know much about aerospace. And it was really neat to see a lot of those people going up and interacting with, uh, with of course, different government agencies, as well as, you know, the actual satellites themselves and striking up those conversations with people. Um, so I typically did not see many existing pilots that were coming through and, you know, and expanding in, in that direction, it tended to be more of the existing hackers that were uh, expanding out into learning more about aerospace. Yeah, you bet. Um, so that first year, we had a number of folks that were working on the village itself. And I, I may have mentioned it before. It was, it was great to see. We had a number of folks from the UK. Uh, all across the states and at the event itself, uh, other folks just showed up. They were at DEF CON, but they wanted to spend their time with the village. And they spent their entire time hanging out, volunteering, helping put on a great event. And I know we had folks from all different uh, countries uh, since then, uh, especially in the virtual events where we've had different speakers from around the world. And when we look at as much as we can, who's following and where they're from on our social media, um, the option or the opportunities we've had, uh, we supported a number of us did a talk for uh, the Echo Party 2021 down at, hosted in Argentina last year and, uh, you know, getting folks like that. So we're seeing around the world participation, volunteers, uh, you know, we've got one of our volunteers lives in Japan uh, with a space operations company. So just continuing to see all of that happening. Uh, and then their backgrounds, and you're talking about personalities. Matt and I come out, I have a military background from flying, um, a policy. I'm not the guy on the keyboard. I want to understand it. But uh, when I was in the private sector, my guys kept me away from the keyboard, like go, go do your paperwork and, and big thinking policy executive stuff, but understanding that in government. Um, and then you have folks like Matt said, you know, he has has had hands on doing the technical work. Uh, other folks who are absolutely uh, their background is in the cybersecurity industry, the company work they do. Um, one of the guys has been red teaming for his entire career uh, across a number of big, uh, big companies. Uh, others that are just students wanting to learn. They're either doing some sort of cybersecurity degree or they want to get into it, professors that are helping out. Um, and so it's just great to see that variety of folks coming in, whether it's uh, you know from the different countries they're coming into this, the backgrounds they bring to this and the, the capabilities. Uh, it's, it's, it's fun to do those things because you see the motivation. These are, nobody's being made to do it. They're all self-selecting of, yes, I'm gonna give my time uh, like now, you know, I'm, I am not doing anything with my company. This is my personal time that I'm happy to do this and happy to talk about these things uh, because it's a, it's a good hobby. I mentioned that the Aerospace Village only came about because of a few volunteers. And that's really true today. The Aerospace Village needs new volunteers to keep operating and to keep growing. You know, my job is to help network and connect folks to our work to bring in folks to support us uh, because what Matt's team does and what he's a part of, his focus is whether we are going to an event like DEF CON, we're going to RSA, there's a number of other things that we try to be there where our audience is in person or expand our audience to more of that kind of business side of things like RSA uh, or governing events or others. It takes a lot of effort. And these guys do an amazing job, the entire team. So if you want to volunteer, absolutely, please uh, take a look at aerospacevillage.org. That's our website. You can volunteer. You can volunteer as much or as little as you want. Um, we have regular meetings talking about things we want to do. And then when it comes time to actually execute, uh, and we're already getting our planning to going for DEF CON. So we'll be sending out a call for papers, a call for presentations, activities that folks want to bring in, uh, things of that nature. So yes, please, please feel free to jump in and join us. And if you want to bring things, you want to be a partner with us, 
uh, we, we are absolutely looking for that. If you have equipment, demonstrations, uh, online activities, the whole point, and you've heard us mention this and that crawl, walk, run, it's exposing our audience to things they can do because that's where the creativity comes out. And that's where you see them dig into things and come up with ideas. And that's the beauty of, of bringing all these folks together. I will gladly take monetary support, absolutely, because we need that to, to get the things that bring people in to allow folks uh, to get to attend these events in a way that we can continue to grow these things. So uh, any of those types of support, and if you just want to learn uh, all of the videos, the virtual presentations and things we've done, we have a, a link on our website, aerospacevillage.org. And you can get to our YouTube page and you can see all the things that we've done in the past between DEF CON and RSA. And we're happy to share that. We're happy to talk to folks. So yeah, please feel free to visit there and let us know what you think. I'd like to thank Steve and Matt for coming on The Hacker Mind and talking about their work with the Aerospace Village. And if you take one thing from this podcast, it's that there are good people, hackers, looking into the problems in aviation today and working with the industry and government so that we can continue to fly with confidence and not to buy into that Hollywood FUD. I hope to talk to them more in the future. I don't know about you, but hacking spacecraft is really interesting. You have to think in terms of two body problems or two line element sets and three dimensional math. <laughs> well, it's a new frontier for hackers. Literally, a new frontier. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter or join me on subreddit or Discord. You can find the deets at hackermind.com. The Hacker Mind is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mind, I remain, with my feet firmly on the ground, Robert Vimosi. <laughs>